This is Kevin. And this is Ron. And this episode of Your Valuable Home is brought to you by Provia. Provia, a faith-based company that makes entry doors, storm doors, patio doors, vinyl and wood-clad vinyl windows, vinyl siding, manufactured stone, and metal roofing, all of incomparable quality. Welcome to Your Valuable Home, the weekly podcast for listeners who believe that residential real estate is the way to build wealth. Hi, I'm Kevin Kennedy, a working contractor and host of Your Valuable Home. Your Valuable Home is for homeowners and investors alike who want to acquire and improve real estate based upon educated decisions. And I'm Ron Milk, Your Valuable Home producer and co-host. Our weekly one-hour podcast is not about doing it yourself. It's about hiring the right contractor to do the right job at the right price. And it's not about flipping. It's about buying and holding to build wealth. Homeowners and investors strive to create wealth and financial freedom with real estate and avoid costly home improvement mistakes. Your valuable home is for you. The Project Replay made redoing our kitchen and bath trouble-free. Your horror stories have kept us from hiring the wrong contractors. The college segments have taught us how to keep toxins out of our home, what to look for in replacement windows, how to borrow sensibly against home equity, and more. College teaches investors like me how to freshen up my rentals without spending a fortune. Their suggestions are great for ROI. It's time for Your Valuable Home. Kev, we got a really stacked show this week. It's just, it's incredible what we're going to be doing. And we're going to start with the uh, replay of a project you've been doing. It's called a mom's week. Yeah, we'll call it the mom's, mom's week because mom is super when okay. you, we, we're going to have her on. But we have Chuck, who's the homeowner, and uh, he put an in-law suite that we talked about prior shows. And what we are going to talk about is we are done. It is finished. We are completely done. They're moving in as we speak. So Chuck, I want to get some of your thoughts about everything that went on now that we are finished from start to finish. And thanks for doing this and coming on the Your Valley home podcast yeah no problem everything is good it's done turned out you know right on schedule and uh we're ha- very happy with it now that we're completed is she moved in she is right after you left i moved all her stuff into her bedroom we had the, ref- the refrigerator delivered and the couch delivered and you hung one of the tvs and i hung the other ones and she's in there and living it up what was the nice part about finishing up ron is that the last day that we were there wrapping everything up awesome awesome homeowners and chuck decided to make us a steak dinner because i've been learning how to smoke and he's my mentor of how to smoke certain meats. So I've been learning off him, but he said, I want to do a steak dinner for both of you or the whole crew. So uh, right at the end of the job, we had a very nice steak dinner. You're going to want to do another drop at his house soon, right? Do I want to go there? Why don't we go there? So I said to him, you know, now that you had everything done, you have a great smoker. Why don't you just do the kitchen over? Uh, no, no, we're not doing that. There you go. <laughs> no. That's pretty conclusive. <laughs> so emphatically, it's a no, but that's something if we what we're trying to talk into, it's not for us at the sales. I'm just looking for another steak dinner because it was awesome. So as we finished everything up, we got everything done. We got our inspections. We're completed. We're moved in. In terms of inspection, did you try to make this ADA compliant? No, no, we never did. It was just certain features that so the homeowners So ta- a township isn't going to require you to do that if you're building it for an older person today, are they? Well, no, it's, well, this isn't commercial. So if it was ADA compliant, we would be putting in a permit according to the specifications that the architect would draw up. And those requirements to be ADA compliant will be then inspected by the township. But right. we did not, we just went in for a standard building code. Okay. So right. the only feature that we wanted to do was uh, the homeowners wanted to do a walk in shower. So when you walk into the bathroom, well, the that, tile. That would be an ADA compliant feature. It's a feature, yeah. right? But it wasn't because the door is not wide enough to get in there. And you also need a certain area. We call it the circumference that if you're in a wheelchair to be able to spin the person in the wheelchair yeah. around yeah, to exactly, get in there. Yeah. 
But uh, yeah, Chuck, why don't you talk about that bathroom? It's, it's beautiful. The shower, that was the main part where we started is with the, the plan for the whole project was we, I wanted a shower that I could just, as she gets older and with age and may need some assistance, that I can just get her into the shower without going over, like having a curb around the shower pan. I just wanted to be able to roll her in there, or put, you know, help her in there without, with this being as easy as possible. Yeah, that's a smart idea. Actually, more showers should be designed that way. You know, what do you need that lip for? You know, uh, well, a lot of the time since we're since we were building this, so what we did was the the pa- the panning that we put in. So the, the shower itself is is a nice size shower, but the panning has got to be in place to absorb if that water gets in. It's got to it's got to go away from the opening. Right? Correct. Right. Mm-hmm. But usually the opening where the panning runs up those curbs. So the water gets in there, it's going to hit the sides and then draw right back down into the pan itself. Mm-hmm. There is no sides on this. So what we did is we super extended the panning underneath. So we put a massive area where we actually took the concrete where it wasn't slab on grade. It was dropped two and a half inches below, but it's bigger than the shower itself. It, it went into the main part of the floor. Gotcha. So if water happened to extend into the flat part where the, the tile's flat before it drops into its pitch, if it absorbs down into that, it's still going to be collected inside that panning. And if it does work its way down and wicks down, it's going to hit the panning and draw back into the, the drain. That was the most important part. But it's not where we can just take a window and spray over everywhere. It just gives her a little bit more ability that the size of the shower that we have, that it's going to be able to collect the water in a certain area that we don't have problems in the future. Gotcha. So that's why okay. we did it that yeah, way. Yeah, because you don't want it pouring out on the floor. Right. Well, what also we did, see, the big thing with this is the, the slab-on grade was going to be higher than the floor itself in the, the foundation area, which they have a wood frame floor, which is joist. The joists are two by tens. Her whole thing was that when she walks from her new bedroom addition into the existing part of the house, it's all one level. So everything was smooth. So what we did is where the concrete met the existing band, which is the wood, we put ice and weather shield rubber between those two so there would be no chemical reaction to start rotting out the wood. So we have mm-hmm. that still set up in the bathroom. And then okay. inside the shower itself, that panning goes even up higher. It's 12 inches above the floor itself. Got it. Okay. Just protecting ourselves for the next 50 to 100 years with that house. So it's just trying to keep everything on budget, do the job, get it done correctly. And that's one thing I want to ask Chuck about. Now that he's seen the project get done, what are some of the things that he's seen that were good or even bad that we did? Something that was it all not on schedule? Did we nickel and dime the death so we can educate our listeners when they're getting somebody to do the house nationwide? So Chuck, what, what, give us some advice that you would give our listeners. Well, at first, I would say they, whoever's going to make a plan to do an addition or an improvement to their house, they should have a, at least an idea of a vision of what they want it to look like. Oh, sure, yeah. You need to have a contractor that's going to work with you and listen to the to you as the customer explaining what you want and to give you an honest opinion on it, if it can be done, how it can be done, and what needs to be done prior to. There's a whole process to it that I learned that I'd never took a project like this before. Just there was a lot of stuff I didn't realize that because of the way that I wanted the shower to be specifically, it kind of dictated how the overall project was going to flow because we had to start there with the foundation for the bathroom, which I would have never thought that we had to start in the bathroom first. That's pretty much what happened. And then we just built around from there. All the stress was on me making sure the elevation was done correctly. Our hardest thing is, and I tell people, the reason why additions are so much harder to build than a new house is that I've got to make sure my elevation from ground up, which is right from the beginning. Matches, matches. If it doesn't, we've got, got major a major issues. you got a problem, yeah. And we were, I knew we were going to run into the issue where the existing part of the floor. Yeah, I would think that would be, would be harder than building a house from scratch, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah. yeah. I've, I've seen guys where they've, they're three inches off, and they have to 
they have a step. They actually put a step there. But when we were doing the concrete, the first thing we came up, we saw that the existing part of the house had a nice dip into it. I'm not going to put the flooring in of the, the concrete. We've got to put it level. So then I have to address that flooring. So when it transfers from one floor to the other, which is right. the subfloor, has to be perfect. So I knew I was going to put like Luan plywood or a little bit more plywood, but it worked out perfect because as we were taking, we took some quarter inch hardwood floor out and then just redid it with a half inch sheet of plywood and then just feathered it right into the carpet. So there's no step. It works fluidly right into from. Yeah, you wouldn't want a step because she could trip over something Correct. Like that. Yeah. And that okay. was the biggest thing on my part was what is my tolerance that I know I have to build to so I can correct the problem if it does happen. But again, I have to go from the addition to the main part of the house because there's two elevations that I have to meet up. That was the key for us. And that was my most difficult part for the first two weeks. And then after that, we started framing. We were done in what, Chuck, four and a half weeks from start to finish at framing. Yeah, once you got the base established, you can just go from and there. And we went and, yeah. and boy, do we go. Because mm -hmm. I remember talking to the yeah. last interview, I said, Chuck, did you think that we were going to hold to our schedule that four and a half, five weeks total can be completed? And that, that was a very aggressive schedule. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Yeah. From July 4th to August 8th or 9th. Start to finish. Beginning end. Good. By doing that, and saying what I was going to do, it probably made your life a lot easier that you saw an end game when you can move back in. It, it did because I didn't realize, you know, when the construction's going on, how your normal lifestyle is, to, is displaced. When they're, you know, you're moving everything around to make sure there's room to work. There's, you know, a window is taken out and the wall is, is bare for a while. And then they're over here working in another part of the house. And it's just, it was just a lot going on. And it was right about the time where I was ready to be done with the project and it was done. <laughs> so I even said to your mom, I said, uh, Joanne, hey, listen, you know, ask your son after about the third weekend, how does he feel about it? Because every other contractor you had said it's going to be what, six months to do it, four to five, six months? Yeah. And I said, the reason why, even if I said I'm going to be there at four to five weeks and at the third week, and I'm doing exactly what I said, getting it done, getting it on the schedule, clean did the job right, not nickel and diming you. At the third week, you were like, all right, let's get done. You were so anxious to get it done. Because people, yeah. when you disrupt the life of their- Yeah, anybody would be. You know, it's, it changes your whole life around you. It does. Every, all your habits and everything. Yeah. It does. Yeah. Now mom's got a, a super addition that she's going to be a part. I, when's the party, by the way? I forgot to ask you. <laughs> well, we haven't scheduled that out yet. <laughs> But we had a great time doing it. Your, your mom was fantastic. Every morning she got us water because it was hot days. She always had ice water for us. And uh, we just really, whatever she needed, we did. So that's why we wanted to uh, make sure that she was very happy. But it's the understanding when it comes to a contractor homeowner relationship, it's certain things that you have to do as a contractor to make sure the homeowner is happy. And if you got to work a little bit extra to get to that schedule that you promised, because I put it in writing day by day what we were doing, I think that makes it a really good work atmosphere for the homeowner and contractor. Do you agree, Chuck? I do. And it actually shows progress because if you say, I'm going to be here in two weeks to start doing the, you know, the flooring, or I'm going to do, you know, work on rough in the bathroom. Now there's two or three weeks that we're sitting there waiting and nothing's happening. This every day was, we're doing this. There was almost three, three projects part of the project happening at one time every day. So you could see that it was coming together much faster. And as the homeowner, it's like, okay, this is almost done. And my mother getting everything done. Now it, she can start to visualize what, what her money is going to, which was very important. So we're, yeah, we're done. So is there any other advice that you can give our listeners if you're going to be hiring a contractor, what to look out for? You have to be able to feel a person when you meet them. When you talk to them, you, you get the impression. The first impression is usually their, their most accurate one. If someone is trying to sell you something or tell you what you want in your house, 
that to me is a red flag. Kevin did not do that at all. And he just said, where do we start? What do you want to do? He sat and thought about it and said, okay, we're going to do this. And, and the project did change from the, when we first started. But in the end, it changed for the better and everything went a lot smoother. So just know what you want and know the right contractor. Well, good luck with it. I'm sure your mom is very, very happy with the fact that you're going to be buddies again here, right? <laughs> yeah, she's yes, she's out of the house in hers. Yes, it's a pleasure, absolute pleasure working with you on your project. Thank you and, and your whole crew. You guys were phenomenal. Thank you very much. We don't have any regrets at all. Thank you very much. Kev, what do you got in the horror story today? This is one that makes me actually feel pretty good, but it doesn't make the homeowner feel pretty good. So going back right around COVID time, when we got back to work, it was my first job after my addition. I was at a, a complex where I was working at, and I was talking with one homeowner that we were about ready to start. Well, one of the neighbors said to me, hey, listen, I, I have a problem with the patio door. I'd like you to take care of it. I'm like, well, I can't right now. You could call somebody else, but I just don't have time right now. I said, I'm really backed up. And if you're going to hire somebody, you know, make sure they know what they're doing because this is a little bit of a tricky door. It's just easy install. But he said, but I need it done now. And I said, look, I get it. And it's the new future day. Everybody wants it done now. He didn't want me to do it because I couldn't do it right at that time. Now, we started the job next door that when we started. We were there for about a month and a half, but still nobody's ever been there to do the door. Well, apparently the guy got somebody to do it right away. And when you have a patio door and you have vinyl siding, it's very simple. Sometimes you got to take the vinyl siding down to take the old door out and then put your new door in with the nailing flanges and the rubber and do all that good stuff. And save the siding. Take it down so you can save it. Yeah, you just it, save right? them. Yeah. It's vinyl. Yeah. Yeah. Take it down. Put it right yeah. back up again. Yeah. It's very easy. Yeah. So I got a call about three weeks ago. And he said, hey, listen, I, you're not one of my customers. Blah, blah, blah. We were just talking. He said, I understand uh, you were upset that we didn't use you for the door. And I said, I still don't know who it was. He said, I live next to one of my customers, Mr. So-and-so. And I said, oh, yeah, I, I get it. So you did get somebody to do the door. It was about two and a half years now. He said, yeah, uh, they're out of business and we got a major problem. My whole floor is rotted. We they had a carpet company come in. All the flooring underneath is rotted. What do we do? I said, well, that's a problem that's leaking. They probably didn't apply uh, the rubbers, the foams. That and I said, but listen, if you want to come out, it's 500 bucks. I'm not wasting my time again to come out and give you free advice. I said, I, I need to get paid for this. He said, not a problem. I said, well, give me the check. So he wrote me a check and uh, I'm not going to cash it. I'm going to just, but I, cause I kind of felt bad for the guy at this point, but I got out there. If you're a contractor and you hire somebody to put a door in and do it correctly, you do not readjust or you do not uh, change the structure of a door, which means they took the nailing flanges and hacked them off with a Sawzall and then just slid the door right inside the J-channel, the existing J-channel. And then on top of that, you have that three-quarter inch space from the door to that jam liner. What's supporting it, then? Screws they put through the jam. But the problem is, is that they never put any wood behind there because they had that gap, which was probably about a three-quarter inch gap from the J-channel to the door. They had to fill it in. Right. So they got wood and put it in there. So my question is, what did you nail to? All yeah. it was was the foam insulation. So they What did they nail to? Nothing. Did you say it? Did you pull it apart? Yeah, I pulled it apart. I pulled it right out there. So listen, I'm going to pull it apart. I'm not responsible uh, for what's going to happen. So I made him sign that, and I pulled it apart. It was just stuck in there and wedged in. But what happened was it was moving through time, which then broke the caulk away, which was leaking inside because the drip cap, which is the most important thing for any window and door above the door. The water's going to come down. It just leaked everything <laughs> right at the whole area out. And I said, well, listen, so that guy you hired, who thought it was a contractor because you wanted to get them right away just cost you an additional $5,000 worth of work because I got to take this whole unit out. I've got to rebuy another unit, which is going to be your cost. When you buy that, 
Then I've got to reframe the, the flooring because the plywood's all rotted out. Then I've got the jack studs were all rotted out because all the water was just pouring inside there the whole time. And now it just showed its ugly face. It was a slow leak, but now it's only been two and a half years. I've got to fix all this. So if you want to do it, but you're going to have to wait, you're going to sign a contract with me. And I don't take deposits. I said, I want a big deposit. I don't care what Pennsylvania says. I want the deposit and you're buying the door because I want to make sure that I'm the one that's going to be doing it to fix this. And I'm going to give all the explanations of how I'm going to do it. And you're going to get the job done right. But I said, was it worth it for you as a homeowner to hire somebody quickly because you wanted to get well, it you done? You answer no to that, right? Yeah, and he really didn't have any major problems with the door prior. It just everybody wants it done now. I said, what if you do it now? I said, what he said it was a bigger company. I said, well, who was the guy that came out? Let me guess. It was an out-of-state van that showed up to do the door with no anything on it, no names or anything. He's like, yeah. it's Who hasn't been back in-state ever since. Yeah. So, and the company said, well, you're out of warranty. They give a one-year warranty on it. Now you're out of warranty. It's two and a half years later. I said, how'd that work out for you? So about, I did the same door, but I installed a Provia door with the neighbors when I did the kitchen. You know what? It's been two and a half years that I got done. You know, they never called me about a problem. I wonder why. Because I put the rubber, the foam, I put a better door in the Provia and door patio slider in, and it's done and done right. Basically, what did he waste on it in terms of cash? Well, I gave him a price back then of $4,500. How much did it cost him? Probably a little bit less. Guy came in quicker, but you say even if it was thirty-seven fifty, it's still a waste of money. Yeah, he's got to throw the whole door right. apart. They right. hacked the door apart to get the door in. How many horror shows that I did where people complaining about replacement windows? And I tell you, here's what it is: they take the in stucco or sometimes in siding, they'll take from the J channel to the existing window or door. They'll put a sawzall. They'll stick it in between there. They'll sawzall the existing nail and flange out so the new construction. Re- or replacement new construction window can pull out easy to put a replacement window in. The only thing that's separating the outside to the inside is the bead of caulk you put on that you need to maintenance. I just don't get it. Everybody's homeowner is going to do that. Well, most homeowners today, the reason why they're hiring people because they put a leap of faith that this guy's going to do the right job. Right, yeah. And it's not. I mean, every horror story, I, this is what I personally seen. When I took it out, the, the, there's the insulation. You can't nail into foam insulation with a trim gun and expect it to hold. You need to nail it to wood or, or something. But if you don't do that. Crazy stuff. Oh, uh, yeah. And I said, well, listen, my price might have been higher. I didn't want to know what he paid prior. But if he looked at it and said I was about $500 more, I'm cheaper. Here's why. I'm taking the existing siding down. I'm leaving the nailing flange in the door because I priced in a Provia door. I'm going to put the nailing flange on with the rubber and the seal and just like we did in the video, just same application as the windows. I'm going to foam it. I'm trimming it. I'm painting the interior of that trim so it matches the door. Then put the siding back up. Yeah, if anybody wants to see that, we got to reference that video. It's on YouTube right now on the New Pod City uh, YouTube channel. I would take a look at that video. Everybody should look at that video to see how windows should be installed. Properly, properly installed. Yeah. I know sometimes replacements are needed to be done, but I, I don't do replacement windows because of these problems that you're going to have in the future. And again, if I'm saying something wrong, and you're a contractor, you want to come on and talk about it, I would be glad to have a good conversation with you, have anytime. a dialect about it. welcome anytime. I, I, yeah. I, I always tell people, that's what I want. I don't want to be one-sided here. Come on on. You know what you're going to hear, Ron? Nobody calling in because nobody wants to go up against me because they know it's not the best way to do it. But it can be done if you maintenance it, but it's not going to be perfect. I want something when I do a window, like a Pro-V and door window, you're done. 
That's the only downside. You're never going to need to do that's that why, window again because it's so I good. Think people should look at that video that we made at Frank's place. There it is, staring you right in the face. That's the right way to do it. It's in detail. So if you have any other horror stories, uh, give me an email, kevin at yourvaluablehome.net. Okay. I'd love to hear your problems and uh, solve them. Or if you want, just chat and talk about a contractor you're going to hire. Let me uh, take a look at the contract, make sure you're getting the right uh, contractor to do the job at the right price and uh, get it done on time. That's what we're here for. Got to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Hey, Kevin here, installing another Provia entry door. I do about 50 or more a year. Schlage knobs, hardware, and handle sets make a great complement to any Provia fiberglass or steel entry door. Provia and Schlage, I think, are the best combination of curb appeal, style, and security money can buy in entry doors. And Schlage now has a complete line of Wi-Fi locks, including the new Encode Plus, which can be locked or unlocked with the tap of an Apple Watch. Amazing. Provia and Schlage, there's no better combination for entry doors. Okay, Ryan, as we continue with our Department of Energy series that we have, this is part three in the featured segment. What do we got going on? Well, part three is about hydrogen, okay? As you know, we've covered solar and we covered nuclear. We've been doing this in interviews with outstanding subject matter experts, all from the uh, U.S. Department of Energy. And today we have Dr. Sundita Satyapal, Director for the U.S. Department of Energy's Hydrogen and Fuel Cell Technologies Office. Kev, your home probably will not be powered by hydrogen anytime soon. However, hydrogen along with solar, nuclear, and wind is a critical technology that will help provide America with carbon-neutral clean energy by 2035, two really key target dates, and a net-zero emissions economy by 2050. You'll be amazed at what hydrogen can do. Doctor, welcome to the Your Valuable Home podcast. Unlike solar, nuclear, and wind, hydrogen, or H2, is an energy carrier, not an energy source, correct? Yes, that's right. And thanks so much for having me and for featuring hydrogen. So many people don't realize that hydrogen, for the most part, is free hydrogen in nature. It's, it's the most abundant element in the universe, but pretty much have to produce hydrogen. And so it's an energy carrier. You can use different fuels uh, to make the hydrogen. So you're absolutely right. It's an energy carrier and not really a primary energy source that's readily found on Earth. Interesting distinction, which I never realized before, and I'm sure most people don't. Aren't there multiple ways that hydrogen can, can be produced? Can you cover some of those for us? Sure. And there are many different ways. In fact, one of the most popular ways, especially for the future, is just taking water. So water, which is H2O, just you know, hydrogen, oxygen, and you can use electricity. So it could be solar, wind, uh, nuclear, geothermal, you know, any electricity source, and then split that water to produce hydrogen and oxygen. And you can also use hydrogen from fuels. So for instance, natural gas, for example, reforming is the process going to high temperature, catalyst, and you can get hydrogen out. You can use biomass. Because hydrogen is so abundant, it's actually in many different compounds, you know, different types of chemicals. And so, again, you can make it many different ways. So it's in other things, other forms of energy. You just have to draw it out. Right, exactly. It's like, like natural gas is basically, for the most part, uh, has carbon and four hydrogens in it. And so when you get, you know, high temperature heat uh, catalyst, you can actually get that hydrogen out and leave the carbon behind. Hydrogen is already in 
use in the United States today. How is it being used today? Most people don't realize this, but we produce roughly 10 million metric tons of hydrogen in the U.S. That's about 10% of the global capacity of hydrogen production and mostly used for refining. So, you know, making the process used to, to make gasoline, there are contaminants like, like sulfur. And so hydrogen is used in that process. It's also used widely to make fertilizer. So one of the main components is, is ammonia. And so it's hydrogen plus nitrogen from the air to make fertilizer. Also other processes like making chemicals, some of pharmaceuticals, making glass. There are many different uses for hydrogen, but most of it is used in the oil refining industry and fertilizer production. And is there like a key way that most of the hydrogen in use today is produced as it derived? Basically, most of the hydrogen in the U.S. that's produced is made from natural gas since we have low-cost natural gas. And if we use that, again, a process called reforming with steam, with catalyst, you can produce uh, hydrogen. And that's how most of it's produced. And very low cost, again, because we have pretty low cost natural gas, it's only about $1.50 per kilogram to produce that hydrogen. How will hydrogen be used in the future? And what is the timeline for broad scale hydrogen usage? That's a great question. And if you look at our goals here and the timeline, we're seeing in the near term, just continuing to use that hydrogen for refining, for fertilizer. But then we also see other applications, especially those hard to decarbonize, like heavy duty trucks. A lot of interest there in where you have long distance driving, maybe you need really fast fueling times. So it would complement batteries or you have heavy payloads where it may be harder to have uh, batteries. And then for other chemicals, again, we see a lot of opportunity. And for manufacturing, for instance, steel manufacturing, like steel alone, when you make steel from iron ore, so you, you bind the iron ore and you make steel. And that process, in fact, globally accounts for roughly 8% of all the CO2 emissions in the world. And so it's very carbon intensive. There's some projects now around the world. We have a couple of projects too we're funding to make uh, steel using hydrogen. So that's an area. And then the other one that's very interesting is using renewables. So for example, solar and wind, which are intermittents, and when you have the solar or wind available, you can split water and make hydrogen and then store that hydrogen. So it's a form of energy storage. And then you can use it for other applications like a fuel or feedstock or, or you can turn it back to electricity. So again, there, there are multiple different uh, uses that we're looking at in the next 10 to 20 years. It's like the all-purpose element. Right, exactly. And that's why, you know, some people call it the Swiss army knife of clean energy because it's so versatile. So you can make it from many different sources and feedstocks, and then you can use it in many different applications. So it really gives you that versatility. So either as a fuel, you know, in, in transportation and in trucks and so forth, or in stationary power or to store energy in manufacturing, like making steel or chemicals. And of course, it's a carbon-free molecule. That's why so many countries are interested and they see that, you know, they can't meet their climate goals um, unless they, you know, only with electrification. And so we really need, you know, all the tools in the toolbox. And then as you develop the science and all that, that can be shared with these other countries too, who may be behind right now in the, in the race to get to uh, clean energy, right? 
That's right. And then we already have, you know, many partnerships with other countries. We have a whole hydrogen partnership and sharing information on, you know, the strategies and a lot of good collaboration there. And many other countries also have national strategies and, you know, recognize the need. Some are, are looking to import, especially since the, the war in Europe import clean hydrogen, you know, instead of uh, natural gas or, or fossil fuels. We heard recently that U.S. released a national clean hydrogen strategy and roadmap with specific goals for hydrogen. Can you tell us about that national strategy? Sure. So this was actually required in the bipartisan infrastructure law that was passed a couple of years ago that the U.S. would develop a national clean hydrogen strategy. So it's with all the different agencies. It's a you know really big deal. And we just announced it just a couple months ago. And it has very specific goals. So uh, targets of uh, 50 million, so five times more hydrogen, clean hydrogen produced in the U.S. by 2050. And also interim goals. So 10 million by 2030, 20 million by 2040 also shows the potential for 100,000 jobs by 2030, just in the, the clean hydrogen industry and has you know very uh, three main components. One is really target that hydrogen for specific hard to decarbonize um, uses. Like I mentioned, the, the trucks, um, manufacturing like steel and energy storage, and then really focus on reducing the cost of hydrogen. That's one of the biggest challenges. And then the third part of the strategy is regional networks. So we're not going to be able to build out, you know, whole national infrastructure. We in the U.S. only have about 1,600 miles of hydrogen pipeline. But instead, what we're going to do is focus on regional clusters. And so you may have heard of the, the Hydrogen Hubs initiative. We have funding planned there. And look across the country, where can we essentially try to collate, locate large-scale production and then end uses so we can develop that infrastructure. So all that is part of the national strategy. Well, I mean, it, it sort of parallels the way where we are right now with the grid because there are really three grids, right? The East, the West, and Texas, right? That's right. And I think here there are different options. So depending on how you produce the hydrogen, again, in some cases, if you don't have the electrolysis, for instance, which is how you split the water, or you don't have enough solar or wind in a certain region, but you may have natural gas or biogas, you can make large volumes in that region and then sequester the carbon so it's still clean. And there may be, for instance, uh, fleets of trucks or other end uses, large industrial plants, and then as we, you know, co-locate, you can use that hydrogen, you know, closer to where it's produced. We see it developing, you know, regionally instead of a, you know, nationwide, uh, quote, hydrogen grid. Okay. You mentioned hydrogen being uh, made from solar and wind and nuclear too is a hydrogen producer, right? And also from the, the heat. So you can, in fact, we have um, the first integrated nuclear hydrogen project that we're funding at DOE. And you can take you know any electricity source so it could be nuclear but because you also produce heat at the plant you can also use some of that heat to help with electrolyzing the water and or steam there are multiple ways myriad ways of doing this of producing hydrogen that's right and you can use nuclear as well as solar or, or any of the other uh, primary sources as a graphic example say a, a thousand megawatt nuclear reactor how much hydrogen can that ha reactor produce in a year 
depends on on the type of production method. There are two. There's one of the main ones that's being used now, which we're actually demonstrating first of a kind. It's called an electrolyzer, and there's low temperature and there's high temperature, and so there's a range again, uh, 1,000 megawatts, which is uh, you know one equal to one gigawatt. Can produce about a hundred and fifty thousand, basically tons of hydrogen. So it's easier to go if we, if we don't have you know what instead of one gigawatt, if we say ten gigawatts, that would be about one point five million metric tons of hydrogen. So that's about fifteen percent of you know the total hydrogen that we're that we produce in the U.S. So that's like ten nuclear plants, ten you know one gigawatt nuclear plants. And if we go to the high temperature again, this would be like the next generation. So we can use some of the heat and don't need you know as much of the electricity. We could even go to about you know as maybe as much as two million metric tons of of hydrogen in a year. Again, that's a pretty large amount. So one gigawatt, for instance, just to put it in perspective. Again, depending on the average home in the U.S., about you know ten thousand, maybe a little over ten thousand kilowatt hours per year. That one gigawatt, if we can convert that to power, would be enough to power roughly eight hundred thousand homes or so. So to put it in perspective, so ten nuclear plants, ten one gigawatt nuclear plants would give us one and a half to maybe as high as two million metric tons of hydrogen. Again, fifteen percent of the total U.S. capacity, which is huge. Well, as you know too, we covered nuclear last week, and a lot of great things happening in that world. And it seems like these things are all everything is. Orchestrated to converge at a certain point, right? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of integration and, and synergy there, especially with hydrogen. We call it an enabler in many ways because it can enable solar and wind. Because especially before there's a lot of transmission that's built out, there could be excess solar or excess wind that just gets curtailed, and so you can use it to produce the hydrogen. For instance, and then if there's not sufficient solar and wind, you can come in with nuclear power, so you continue to produce that hydrogen. So again, there's a lot of、uh, synergy there across the different sources and and uses. Sounds like a great new future for the country,、it、really does, and probably will throw off a lot of jobs too. I would think. That's right. Our, our initial study of the national roadmap showed the potential for hundred thousand、uh, jobs. And recently, DOE also released this、uh, commercial liftoff, what we call liftoff reports. And so, seeing the initial analysis of about a hundred thousand jobs by twenty thirty. By twenty thirty, okay. There's the other target of twenty fifty too. So that would probably create more jobs as well. I would think. Yes, yes, and there are various global studies also showing. In our national study, by the way, it shows that if we can get hydrogen at scale, clean hydrogen, and really achieve what's in the national strategy, that would relate to basically enable ten percent of the total CO two reduction out in twenty fifty. So if we're trying to get to net zero, hydrogen can enable up to ten percent. There are various global studies also that show you know even its opportunity for twenty percent and to thirty. Million jobs, and so again, there there's lots of opportunity there, and we're still, you know, in the early stages. So, but it's it's very exciting. Indeed, it is. Well, any talk of hydrogen should also include conversation about fuel cells. What are they? What role does hydrogen play? What can we expect fuel cells to power in the coming years? Is it trucks? Is it planes? Yeah. So, thanks so much for asking that. In fact, and I've been in this field for so many decades now, over two and a half decades in government and industry. And I always tell the story because it's it's a true story, but it's kind of unbelievable. But when I moved from industry, and our previous company that I was in made fuel cells. 
cells. In fact, every American manned space mission had used our fuel cells. The astronauts can even you know, drink the water from the fuel cells and uh, many examples. But when I moved from industry to government, many people thought that I was moving to NIH, National Institutes of Health. And I was always really confused and I was wondering why did they think, you know, I was working on fuel cells and why did they think I was moving to NIH? And that's because they thought fuel cells were the same as stem cells. And so it just goes to show that, you know, not that many people know what fuel cells are. And so thanks again for, for having this show. And so fuel cells are really simple devices. They were actually very first invented in the 1800s. And they're a lot like batteries. So they just take a fuel so they can take, you know, any fuel. In this case, we're focusing on hydrogen. And you flow that hydrogen on one side of the fuel cell. It consists of, you know, catalyst, a membrane, just very simple components. And they produce electricity. So you take air, so just oxygen from the air on one side of the cell and then hydrogen on the other side. And instead of combustion, so unlike your car at home where you have, you know, a flame essentially burning, you have pistons, you don't have any of that. It's just very simple. You produce electricity. It's an electrochemical reaction. And the only product is water, so water vapor. So it's really clean. So completely, you know, zero emissions. And it's much more efficient because you don't waste a lot of the fuel energy as heat, two to three times more efficient than, you know, conventional combustion type vehicles. And they, you can use them. They're modular, they're scalable. They can be small enough to power a laptop or a portable device or large enough to power, you know, trucks or even buildings. So the world's largest is in Korea, over 70 megawatts. And so, again, you can use them in, in many different applications. And they have already been used in trucks and trains, even planes. And then homes also, since the interest here is, is homes in Japan, ever since Fukushima, more than a decade ago, they've invested a lot in, in home residential fuel cells, and there are over 400,000 now in, in Japan. So fuel cells that can provide just power to the home, even hot water. So there's a little bit of heat that's released. And so lots of opportunities in buildings as well for, for stationary power or backup power. It's interesting you bring that up because we did a story on a hydrogen-powered home in Pennington, New Jersey. And you built and a hydrogen-powered woman, car. Yeah, she loved it. Yes. And yeah, the guy who built the home did. Yeah, I was watching the video of him taking the, a glass of water out of the exhaust of the car and start drinking it. Right, exactly. Yeah. exactly. <laughs> I wish I was younger so I could experience all this stuff as it comes down the pike. So it could power planes, it could power the family car, and it could power your house. I think, again, it depends on the specific use case. So in some cases, it would make more sense to use a liquid fuel which has more energy content. So so hydrogen has, it's the highest energy of, you know, the known fuels, but based on, on weight. So that's why NASA uses hydrogen for space missions. It's three times more energy, uh, again, by weight compared to gasoline. So pack a lot of energy in there. But the problem is that because it's such a light molecule, it's a gas at room temperature, it has very little energy by volume. You have to compress it. And so if you have a liquid like gasoline, that has more energy, you know, by volume. So that's why there are, there are pros and cons. And so in some cases, for instance, if it's really long distance plane, it may be, make more sense in terms of, you know, volume and packaging to use liquid fuel, so sustainable aviation fuel, or, or sometimes, let's say for small vehicles that if you have lots of stop and go traffic and you don't need long driving range, then, you know, battery vehicle would make more sense. You know, hydrogen and fuel cells can be used in many different applications applications, but looking at you know where does it make the most sense as part of the, the whole portfolio is key. And one example, just to give you 
a flavor of how much has, has happened in the last decade. And here also similar to the funding we have now, at that time we had the American Recovery Act. You may have remembered that in 2009 timeframe. And we helped to demonstrate in our role as government is to help to de-risk the technology, uh, you know, work with, with partners. We demonstrated the first hydrogen fuel cell forklifts. So inside the warehouses where there's a need for zero emissions and it was harder to use batteries because it just takes longer to charge and so forth. And so now we did some of the first demos and now thanks to the industry, there's over 70,000 forklifts inside warehouses. You know, these are commercial and major companies like Amazon, Walmart are using them. And in fact, every few seconds, some customers refueling with hydrogen just for the forklift industry. So it's already being commercial, but you know, most people are just aren't aware of it. But yes, you're right. It can be used in you know many different applications. You know, you just struck a very, very responsive chord with me. One of the reasons we wanted to do this is because I think all Americans should be aware of what the DOE is doing here because it is not only the future, but it is a major job creator going down the road too. Yes, definitely. And in fact, just in our funding alone, just in our office, we have, because of the funding, we have over 1,300 patents that, again, we fund companies, universities, national labs. And so there's just been so much innovation. So they've really you know, brought the cost down, improved the performance. We have about 30 technologies in the market, and we see maybe another 60 additional technologies that can be in the market and commercialized thanks to the DOE funding. What are the challenges to producing low-cost clean hydrogen? There's basically today, if you look at just how you produce hydrogen from natural gas, you also produce carbon dioxide as part of that process. So when we talk about clean hydrogen, we're talking about, you know, really as close to zero emissions as possible. So in the ideal case, for example, splitting water, you just have hydrogen and oxygen. You don't have any CO2. And so uh, there, there are many challenges, but one of the, the biggest is really the, the cost. So how do we ensure that we can have low low cost hydrogen so we're, we're working on you know how do we reduce the, the cost of hydrogen what are the goals and initiatives in terms of lowering the cost of hydrogen creating jobs and carbon reduction yeah thanks so much for asking about that here too this was really really exciting so you might remember the moonshot so that was you know over half a century ago when jfk announced the you know, the, the first human being on the moon and that was a really big initiative and so in um about two years ago, a little over two years ago, when President Biden asked our Secretary of Energy, you know, what more can we do to really accelerate progress and address the climate crisis? And that was the very beginning of the uh, the Energy Earth Shots initiative. So kind of similar to the moonshot from for half a century ago. Energy Earth Shot Hydrogen was the very first, and which is appropriate because it's element number one. And it has this really bold, really ambitious, easily articulated goal of uh, one, one, one. So what that stands for is $1 for one kilogram of clean hydrogen in one decade. So that's one, one, one. So that's the goal. And again, because today hydrogen, you know, just from natural gas, so it's not necessarily, you know, that clean is a dollar fifty or so. So we need to get, if we're going to meet our national strategy and get, you know, five times more hydrogen and really help decarbonize, get all these applications going, it has to be lower cost. And so that's the, the $1 uh, goal of, of hydrogen shots. Wouldn't another goal, the hydrogen shot, uh, be to make the U.S. the, I guess, undisputed leader in clean energy manufacturing industries? 
Yes, definitely. And so, you know, going back to where we started with a lot of the the work from NASA, for instance, the space program, just the very early development of fuel cell technologies with industry and governments, the U.S. was really a leader. And so definitely with the opportunity here and all the additional funding, the national strategy, um, hydrogen shot is also one you know critical piece of how do we enable that domestic uh, and global competitiveness and manufacturing as well. And so today, for example, if you look at the cost of hydrogen, again, it varies. There are many different assumptions, but if we look at our kind of baseline cost, depends on the cost of, let's say, if you're taking solar or wind, the cost of the electrolyzer, but we were you know, roughly $5 a kilogram. And again, there's many assumptions there, but five or more dollars a kilogram to get that clean hydrogen. So we still have, you know, ways to go more than 80% cost reduction. You know, we've already seen so much progress, like just electrolyzers with our funding over, you know, decades, we've helped to reduce the cost 80, 90%. And there's just so much with manufacturing. Also, there's a lot of incentives now. We're starting to see announcements of gigawatt scale manufacturing plants. And so it's it's definitely not just in the laboratory. And so that's also an important goal of the of hydrogen shot to accelerate all the progress. You know, we start with the molecule, the cost of the hydrogen, but we still have to deliver it, store it, and you can store it like on board the vehicle. Most of the the vehicles use high pressure gas, so similar to like propane or compressed natural gas vehicles, and they just store it on, on tanks. And these are, you know, go through all, all the testing and so forth and uh, pretty effective. You can also store it as a liquid. You can store it in other forms, for instance, ammonia or chemicals that can store, you know, again, large amounts of, of hydrogen. And then you can also store it for really long, long duration storage underground in caverns and salt domes. In fact, we have three geological storage caverns in the U.S., including the world's largest in Texas, and those can store, you know, many gigawatt hours of, of hydrogen. And then to deliver the hydrogen, you can, today, you know, it's often delivered by, by trucks. So uh, just like you see, you know, the gasoline trucks, tube trailers, there's also a lot of liquid hydrogen delivery. So again, if you make it into a liquid, it's much more energy dense. And then, of course, pipelines. So we have over 1,600 miles of pipelines, most around the Gulf Coast area for the refining industry, but there are different ways to deliver and store. And then a lot of countries are looking now at, you know, importing hydrogen to meet their goals and really energy needs also for, for energy security and not, you know, relying on certain countries. And they're looking at importing the hydrogen in different forms. So you can import it as ammonia and then uh, either use it, for instance, fertilizer or just with the ammonia. So lots of different options for delivery and storage. But in, in all cases, we still have to, to reduce the cost. Well, it's extremely versatile element then, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. And that's part of the advantage there. I know you work with a number of commercial partners. Can you mention some of the key ones? Oh, yeah, yeah. So well, there, there are many partners. So again, in our role, we provide the funding and help to develop the national strategy and the, the targets and set the overall goals. But all of that is you know, with our, our partners. So industry, also lots of universities, national labs, a lot of the stakeholders, the uh, environmental community, you know, the disadvantaged communities and so forth. It's, you know, really inclusive process. So in fact, we, we released a draft, our secretary released the draft national strategy for public comments last year. And then we, we took in all the comments 
And so in terms of the commercial partners, we have across the whole value chain. So the hydrogen producers, electrolyzer manufacturers, the tank manufacturers, those working on the pipelines, also the fuel cell companies, the truck and vehicle makers, so many partners. So definitely have at least a couple hundred partners that we're working with. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Many hands make light work. That's one of my favorite expressions. But this has been absolutely fascinating. And I think it will be so for our listeners too. News recently about HIT, H-I-T, great name, Hydrogen Interagency Task Force. Can you tell us about HIT and what's next for hydrogen? Yes, this was great news just very recently launched by the White House and our Deputy Secretary will be co-chair. So we basically are looking at a whole of government approach. So it's not just DOE, even though, you know, DOE has been the lead over the the decades for hydrogen and fuel cells. And of course, working with many agencies, we've had an interagency working group, but there's so many other challenges. So how do we, you know, ramp up supply of hydrogen quickly? Now that we have a national strategy, the HITS will help to really execute that national strategy. So we'll bring together many of the different federal agencies, and each of them can play a critical role. So, for example, with pipelines or siting and permitting all the different end uses, so bringing in transportation and commerce. Uh, We have Department of Defense. For example, we have a project called the H2 Rescue. We're co-funding that. It could go to a disaster site runs on hydrogen as a truck and could produce power and heat like at the disaster site and it can also produce water so that's an example called h2 the rescue Uh, so again bringing in all the different agencies to address the challenges on how do we get the supply the demand all the infrastructure the analysis the the, the global competitiveness and uh, becoming a leader the workforce developments again really need to train uh, the next generation so all that will take place through the hydrogen interagency task force so this is just a fun fact as well and and i'll help promote this through the hits as well since i'll be the the director of the hits as well but since hydrogen is the very first elements in the periodic table and it has uh, an atomic weight this is for the the geeks in us uh, the atomic weight is 1.008 so 10-8 or october 8th is designated national hydrogen and fuel cells day okay and so if you want to mark your calendar we actually congress passes a resolution every year to make it a national day and so it's the only element with its own you know atomic weight day thanks to the fuel cell uh, trade association so we've been celebrating for at least eight years now and so we try to do a lot of media and awareness about hydrogen on that whole week that's as it should be i'll tell you you have a lot to celebrate too your office is doing a lot of great work dr sunita satyapal director of the u.s department of energy's hydrogen and fuel cell technologies office talking about a vital technology that is coming your way and uh, not too many years down the road hey kev great news on how our listeners can tap into their home equity without taking a loan making monthly payments or piling on debt With Unison, they get up to 17.5% of their home's value to remodel, pay off debt, buy a vacation home, whatever. You have Unison, right? Yep, paid off medical debt. Unison's terms were perfect for me, especially zero monthly payments for up to 30 years. 
Zero monthly payments. How do they make money? When you sell your home, you pay them the original co-investment amount plus a percentage of the change in your home's value up to 30 years later. How do we learn more? Go to unison.com backslash YVH, which stands for Your Valuable Home. Again, that's unison.com backslash YVH. Additional terms and conditions apply. Visit unison.com backslash YVH for details. Remember the name Provia, your single source for professional class, entry doors, storm doors, patio doors, vinyl and wood-clad vinyl windows, vinyl siding, manufacturing, stone and metal roofing products made with latest technology and honest old world craftsmanship the Provia way that's this week's podcast your valuable home comes to you every week on the new pod city podcast network apple podcast and all other popular podcast directories if you want us to share your home improvement project or horror story email me at kevin at your that's kevin at your and don't forget to tell your friends and family about Your Valuable Home, the weekly podcast that's all about building wealth in residential real estate and hiring the right contractor to do the right job at the right price. 